If you can find your seats and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Again, that's Philippians chapter 2. We'll be in verse 12 again this morning. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, it's Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. This is the word of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Our Lord, our Father, God, God, I pray, Lord, this morning you would help us understand the, the deep truths that are found in these two verses, Lord. These important truths, Lord, that, that teach us how we are to live our Christian walk, Lord. From justification and salvation, Lord, until glorification, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it is you that works in us, Lord, that we are to work and rest at the same exact time that we are to grow, Lord, not with our own power, but through your power, Lord. That we are to work knowing that it's you who grows us, Lord. I, I know these two truths seem like they, they contradict each other, Lord, but we know because your word states them and puts them side by side that they are both true and there is no conflict. God, I pray that you would help us just see these deep truths these morning in a way, Lord, that it would encourage us, Lord, to, to live more faithfully to you. That's my prayer. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to be finishing where we left off last week, looking at these two uh, really incredible verses, these two verses that uh, hold a perfect tension uh, when it comes to the Christian walk. Uh, where Paul uh, gives maybe the clearest definition, at least concise, short, clearest definition of sanctification in all of Scripture. And, and I thought it would be helpful today as we look at these two very important verses to really talk about what sanctification is. Because surprisingly to uh, many Christians, uh, this can be a confusing topic. Um, so let's start here. Scripture talks about salvation— Salvation in three different uh, dimensions, three dimensions that uh, are, are connected to each other, past, present, and future. Meaning for a Christian who has truly trusted in Jesus, put, put its faith in the Lord as, as uh, their Savior, Lord and Savior, uh, that Christian has been saved, past, is being saved, present, and will be saved, future. Uh, what do I mean by this? Let's just kind of walk through past, present, and future. Let's start with the past, past tense. He has been saved. If you're a Christian this morning, you have been saved. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved. That's past tense. In fact, it's a perfect tense. It's something that's happened in the past that has effects uh, in the future. But it happened in the past. You have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is salvation in the justification sense. It's a theological term, justification. It's what has happened in the past when you put your faith in Christ, in Jesus. 
you were declared righteous. Even though you were a sinner, still a sinner, you were declared righteous. And this is what most people mean when they say, I am saved. Or if they ask, are you saved? They're talking about salvation in a justification sense. But Paul also talks about salvation in a present tense, in an ongoing process. He, we see this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 where he says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is salvation in the sanctification sense. This is an ongoing process where we are slowly becoming more and more like Christ, becoming more righteous, becoming more godly and holy, slowly becoming more sanctified. Again, this is salvation in the sanctified sense. We have justification and sanctification. And finally, the Bible talks about salvation in a future sense. One day in the future, we will actually become righteous, completely sinless. Romans 13, 11 says this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This is salvation in the future sense. One day we will be saved. This is glorification where we'll be saved uh, from, from unrighteousness and sinfulness altogether. And, you know, as I have grown in my sanctification, as I've grown in my walk with the Lord, uh, the more and more I look forward to this, where there will just be no more temptation, where I will sin no more, and we will live in perfect harmony with God for eternity. Therefore, in the past you were saved, in the present you are being saved, and in the future you will be saved. In the, in the past you were declared righteous, even though you weren't. In the present you are actually becoming righteous slowly. And in the future, one day, you will be righteous completely without sin for eternity when we find ourselves in the glorified state. Therefore, in our passage this morning, when it says, work out your own salvation, Paul is talking about salvation in the sanctification sense. Because the word work out in Greek, it's one word translated work out in English, is in the present tense and has an ongoing aspect to it, a continual aspect to it. This means the salvation talked about in Philippians 2:12 and 13 is sanctification, not justification. Now, this is extremely important, and um, let me explain why. Because in, in the justification sense, we are not to work at all. We are saved by grace through faith. But unlike justification, in the sanctification, we are called to work. And that's why Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and we're commanded, we're called to work. Now, last week we spent all of our time in verse 12 in uh, this process of sanctification. Our, our responsibility uh, in the sanctification process, again, we are to work. Today I want to look at verse 13 and see God's role in the sanctification process. Again, look at verse 13, it says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good now, 
I have three points that we find in this one verse. We see the author of our sanctification, which is clearly God, the work that he does within our lives, and the purpose of that work. So three points, the author, the work, and the purpose. And I want to end today uh, with some application. I want to look at both these verses from last week's sermon to this week's sermon, verse 12 and 13, and really end with some just practical application that comes out of these two verses when we put them together, when we hold that tension uh, uh, that we find in these two verses. So let's start with the first point this morning, the author. If you would, look at verse 13. It very clearly says, for it is God. God is the author of our sanctification. He gets all the credit. He's the source. He's where the power to grow, where the power of sanctification comes from. He gets all the credit for any growth in the sanctification process, even though, verse 12, we are to work. It is God who works in us. Our work is done by his power and by his grace. Now, the word work in Greek is uh, energio, which is the word we get energy from or energized from, meaning God is the one who energizes our sanctification. It's a good way of understanding that. He's the source of our growth. He's the author of the growth that we see in our life as Christians, meaning even though we are called to work, we can rest knowing it is God who works in us. I want to show you something that I think will illustrate this really well. Uh, something that I think will be helpful because Paul's being very intentional here. And, and one of the dangers of going slowly through a book like I'm doing, one verse at a time at, at this pace, um, is that you kind of forget the context and what Paul's actually saying as a whole. So we need to pull back and remember the context here. Paul, Paul's in prison, and that's a major theme uh, throughout this book. This is a prison epistle. He's under house arrest, meaning he doesn't have the freedom to go where he wants to go at this point. When Paul wrote this letter, again, under house arrest, it was, it was at a point that he wasn't sure if he was going to live or die. Now, in verse one, or in chapter one, it's clear that Paul thinks he's going to live, but he's not positive about that. That's why we get that uh, um, saying, we get that saying from where Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He doesn't know exactly what is going to happen, if he's going to live or die, meaning, and I want you to think about this, Paul loved this church, as we've seen so clearly, and this church loved Paul. They had an intimate relationship. Paul's not sure if he's going to live, meaning this very well could be the last communication Paul ever has with this group of people that he loves. So think about that. That's the context. And that's why Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as, I, as um, in my presence, but much more in my absence. I am not with you right now, and I may never see you again. So much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Paul commands them to be obedient. And again, not just normal obedience. He says, much more in my absence. Now listen, if Paul ended here, and I try to say this last week, if I ended the sermon last week, right, if Paul just ended here and he didn't add verse 13, this would be discouraging. 
It would be disheartening, even, even daunting. Because in essence, Paul is saying, I may never see you again, therefore, work harder. If I die, just work harder. Now, that is discouraging because if you are struggling to obey when, God, or when Paul is with you, how are you going to obey when he is gone? discouraging thought and command if Paul didn't add verse 13. Again, Paul says this, much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. In other words, in the context, I believe Paul is saying, I may not be with you right now. I may not be with you ever again. But don't worry. You don't need me. Because God is with you. In fact, God is at work within you. Verse 13, for it's God who works in you. The Holy Spirit lives within you. You don't need me. Think about the confidence that Paul is trying to install in this church. Paul is saying, I, I may not be with you, but guess what? God is and he's working in you. Now, remember what Paul's already said at this point. Philippians 1.6. Right? Paul said, I am sure of this. Right? I am confident about this. That he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in chapter 2, when Paul calls the church to be more diligent in his absence, in the same breath, He's encouraging the church by saying, it is God who is working within you. And listen, God finishes what he starts. He will complete what he started. He just said that. Now, just by the way, kind of as a side note, this is why I'm so confident that true Christians will always produce fruit. There will always be fruit because... God is at work within them. He is the author of their sanctification. He is the source of their sanctification, and he will not fail. If you're a Christian this morning, I just want you to know that God the Spirit lives within you. He's at work within you, meaning you will produce fruit. You will produce fruit. God will produce fruit in your life. Now, let me be clear because there's a tension here. That doesn't mean Christians are sinless. But we can have confidence that we will bear fruit. We will grow in our sanctification and in our holiness because it is God who works in us. He's the author of our salvation. He's the energizer. He's the source. He's the power of our sanctification Therefore, we will grow. We will grow. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder. <laughs> it's by the grace of God, he is who he is. But then he says, on the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it is 
uh, was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. He's the author, yet I work. Paul says this in Colossians 1, 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that, that, that he powerfully works within me. Paul is toiling, he's struggling with all his energy. God's energy that he powerfully works within me. It's God's grace and power that grew Paul. God was working within him. Yet he was the one working. <laughs> Again, there's a tension that we need to hold. This leads me to my next question. We know that God is the author of sanctification. He's the source of sanctification. The question I want to answer is, how does God work within us? How does God work within us? I think the Bible, even though there's mystery gives us a lot of truths that we need to understand, and we see a lot just in verse 13. The work, it's the next point this morning, the work that God does. Look at verse 13 again. It says this, For it is God who works in you, both, two things, to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in you so that you will will and you will work for his good pleasure. In other words, God changes our will and causes us to work for his good pleasure. This is what God does within us. This is his work within us. Now, the word will in Greek is thelo, which means will wish, want, or maybe the best way of understanding this is desire. Desire. It's a will that's connected to our desires. It's what we want to do, meaning in the sanctification process, God slowly changes our desires, our wants, our will, so that more and more we have a distaste for sin and a desire for holiness and godliness, a desire for Christ, a desire to be like Christ, a desire to be holy, a desire to do God's work. God changes our desires within. And this truth is actually found throughout scripture. It's the effects of new birth. It's one of the effects is that, that it changes our desires. Before new birth, we were spiritually dead, children destined for wrath, and, and without any desire for God. But after new birth, after God brought life to our souls, our hearts were changed from stone to flesh, and he gave us new desires. And, and listen, this is so important. These new desires are our desires. Hey, did you hear that? They're not a foreign, unwanted desire that God puts in us. They, they become our desires. They are desires from within. They are our desires. In other words, we are not mindless, lifeless robots programmed by God. No. God changes the inclination of our hearts, but there still are inclinations. In fact, if you're a Christian this morning, I just want you to think about it. Before God brought saving grace to you, think of your desires and how those change after you became a Christian. 
where do you think those desires came from? They're your desires, but they're desires God gave you. Let me show you what I mean by this, because it is somewhat complicated and deep. If you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. Paul does something often in his letters that I want to point out. It's something that I think we just kind of take for granted. We read it. It's so familiar to us that we just kind of read past it. And we don't intentionally think about it. But look what he says right in the beginning of verse 16. He says this. But thanks be to God. Let me stop there. Paul often in his letters when he talks about the good works that someone is doing or the good desire someone has, he starts by thanking God, not that person. Again, we kind of read past that. and In fact, we emulate that a lot of times and say that. But there's an intentionality here. Paul is thanking God for the good works of someone is doing. In fact, this morning in the first service, and I did this again in second service as I prayed for Chase as he came up here. In my mind, I was thinking as, as I said, thank you, God, for him. I was thanking God for all that he has done in his life to bring him to where he's at at this moment. Paul says this, look, thanks be to God. He's thanking God. And then look what he says. Who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Who put in the heart this care, this desire? God did. God put in the heart a desire that, that, that Paul had, an earnest care for, for a group of people. It was a desire that God gave Titus, but Titus is not a mindless robot. Look what it says in verse 17. For he, that's Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you, what's it say? On his own accord. <laughs> Out of his own will. Because he wants to. God put it in his heart, but at the same time, he went on his own accord. It was his desire. Now, how that works, I'm not sure. <laughs> but that's what the Bible teaches. I don't know. But one of the ways God sanctifies us is by giving us new desires. Slowly changing our desires as we grow more and more like Christ. And not only that. He causes us to work out these new desires. Remember what Philippians 2.13 says. It says, it is God who works in you both two things, to will and to work. To will and to work. In other words, it's not just a desire God gives us. It's a desire that works, that acts, that bears fruits. It's a, it's a will that works. God is in us to both will and to work. Now, let's think deeply about this. I know we've gone deep already, but let's go a little bit deeper. We need both these words, will and work, to will and to work. We need both these words. What if God gave us one without the other? What if God gave us one without the other? Let me put it this way. What if God gave us a will to work, but we didn't have the ability? Think about it. We had a desire to do God's will. We had a desire to grow, but absolutely no ability to grow. What would that be? Frustrating. 
right? It would be a desire to, to work and grow in our sanctification, but, but no ability to do so. That would be frustrating and fruitless, pointless, exasperating. And God's a good father. He doesn't do that. He gives us a will and the work. But let's look at it the other way around. Think about the other way around. What if God caused us to work, to do his will, but he didn't give us a desire to do his will? Think about that. At best, our good works, quotation, would be done begrudgingly. At worst, our works would have been done with evil motivations. Either our heart, either way, our hearts would be far from God. Let me just give you two examples of this, because I think looking at this and, and thinking about it, we see the grace of God. If you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, we'll start in verse 5. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, God says this, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. He says this, Against a godless nation I send him. Let me just explain what's going on here. Paul, or God is going to use Assyria as his rod of anger. He, he is sending them to a godless nation, Israel, as judgment. And against the people of my wrath, I command him. Again, God is sending Assyria to accomplish his work. Right? To do God's will, to judge Israel. Assyria is going to go and obey the Lord's command and do what God wants them to do. Which is to take spoil and seize and plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the, um, of the streets. Again, this is an act of judgment on God's part against Israel. And he's using Assyria to be the one that will judge Israel to accomplish God's will. But, verse 7, but he, this is the king of Assyria, does not so intend. And his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy. In other words, it's in his heart, the king of Assyria and the Assyrians, to do evil and to cut off nations, not a few. In other words, they're going to do what God wants them to do, but their intentions are evil. Their will, their desires are evil desires. Therefore, look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work using the Assyrians on Mount Zion, the judgment poured on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. In, in other words, even though the king of Assyria did exactly what God wanted him to do, because his intentions were evil, God's going to punish him. You see that? 
He had the work, but not the will. Let me show you another place that I think is even clearer. Turn to Genesis verse 45. Genesis chapter 45, verse 4. We'll start at verse 4. Most of us know the story. We're familiar with this portion of scripture. This is Joseph and his brothers. Joseph thrown into slavery, ends up in Egypt, is at the right hand of Pharaoh, uh, invites his brothers to come because there's a famine and they're going to live in Egypt. And, and Joseph, at this point, this is after the, pretty much the whole story, is talking to his brothers. And look what he says, verse 4. He says, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, what is Joseph saying here? Who sent him to Egypt, according to Joseph in this verse? The brothers, right? Well, look what he says in verse 5. And now do not be dist uh, uh, distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, is, who is Joseph saying sent him to Egypt? Well, you sent me here God sent me, both, the brothers and God. Look at verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Now who does Joseph say said sent him to Egypt? He says, God, he doesn't even mention the brothers. Now look at verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you see the progression there? Listen, Joseph's brothers did exactly what God wanted them to do. They sent Joseph to Egypt. They accomplished the work of God, but they did not intend to accomplish God's work. They just wanted to get rid of their brother. Their desires were evil. Therefore, in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says this, As for you, the brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, the brothers accomplished the work of God, but their desires, their will was evil. It was far from God. And here's where we see the grace and goodness of God in our lives. Not only does God accomplish his work through us, not only does God slowly sanctify us, but he also gives us the will to accomplish his work. He gives us godly desires. He puts them within our hearts, desires that desire him. He gives us a will that wants to do his work. Therefore, the work that comes out of our sanctification comes from godly desires, not evil ones. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work, to do both. And those two words go together. 
He gives us the will, but he also gives us the ability to accomplish that will, to will and to work. Now, Augustine, one of my favorite characters in church history, just one of the most influential men in, in all of human history, especially Western civilization, famously wrote this, God makes us do what he pleases by making us desire what we might not otherwise desire. Or he puts it in another way in his confessions, he's praying to God, and he says this a number of times as he's praying to God, God, command what you will and give what you command. In other words, give me the desire and ability to do what you command. Command what you will and give what you command. Now turn back to Philippians 1, verse 13. This brings me to my last point this morning. Again, I hope taking a deep look at those two words, will and work, that we see the grace of God in our lives. That God not only uses us, not only does he grow us, but he gives us the desire to do his work. Which brings me to my last point, the purpose. Why does God do this? Well, look at verse 13 again. It says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God saves us and he sanctifies us simply for his good pleasure. That's an amazing just thought. Again, I, I think sometimes we read, and one of the, the struggles of going through a book so slowly uh, is that we forget the context, but one of the problems of reading through a book too quickly is that we miss things like this. For his good pleasure. It's an amazing thought that, that our good works, when they are done with a pure motive, a will that God gives us, those works please Him. Meaning, by God's grace and power as Christians, we can please God. We can please God with our good works. That's just an amazing thought. You know, one of the most breath taking verses I think there is in all of scripture is Hebrews eleven sixteen, which is uh, about some of the Old Testament saints. It says this in verse 16, but as it is, they desire. This is a desire that they had, and as we've learned in our passage this morning, this is a desire that God gave them. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, because of this desire that God gave them, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Did you hear that? That's just an amazing line. God is not ashamed to be called their God. We may even say God is proud to be called their God. We can say, I, I, I'm, I think because of the passage that we're in this morning, he is pleased to be called their God. I just hope one day that that's true about me. That I can get to heaven one day and God can say, I, I was not ashamed to be called his God. Listen, 
our good works, our growth and sanctification, when, when done with, with a, a, a right motive, pleases God. It pleases God by God's grace. After justification, after new birth, after being adopted into his family, we can please God with our actions, with our growth. And this brings me all the way back to where we started last week. I mean, knowing that, that we can please God, it should motivate us to do what? To work hard. <laughs> to work hard. To work out our own salvation. So again, our three points this morning. The author of our sanctification is God. The work that he does is, is to cause within us to will and to work. And finally, the purpose is for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. Now, I want to end with an application this morning. An application really from last week's sermon and this week's sermon. From Philippians 2, 12 and 13. This tension, this balance uh, that we have to hold. That we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us. And there's a tension there. There's a balance that, that we're called to hold and we get in trouble when we're out of balance. I, I want to look at an application because I recently came across an analogy that I thought was extremely helpful. Right, to help understand this tension, to help us just hold this tension well, uh, found in these two verses. And it comes from a Scottish Puritan writer. He wrote this. All the art and industry of man cannot form the smallest herb or make a stock of corn to grow in, in the field. It is the energy of nature and the influence of heaven which produces this effect. It is God who causes the grass to grow and the herb for the service of man. And yet, nobody will say that the labors of the farmer are useless or unnecessary. Think about that. We live close to the San Joaquin Valley, so we're familiar with farming. Some of the hardest workers in the world are farmers. They plow fields, they plant seeds, they water, they harvest. It's, it's all hard work, but, but if, if the farmer is honest at all, he will tell you that the miracle of farming is not the plowing, is not the planting, is not the watering or the harvesting. The miracle is the growth. That a little seed would grow into a plant. That a plant would grow into a tree. And that that tree would produce fruit. That's the miracle. The life and the growth of the plant is the miracle. The farmer cannot produce that. He is powerless to make plants grow but he can provide the environment and conditions for growth to happen. In fact, it would be foolish for a farmer to sit back and passively wait for the land to produce crops, right? Even if he knew that it's ultimately God that causes growth. For him to sit back and say, well, then just let the plants grow would be foolish. Therefore, a wise farmer prepares and cultivates. He works hard to create an environment for growth to happen. Well, in a very similar way, you cannot produce growth in your life. 
You are powerless to affect holiness within your heart. Only God changes hearts. Yet, only a foolish Christian waits passively for his heart to spring up righteousness. The wise, godly Christian works, plows, plants, waters, and harvests. He does all that he can to cultivate growth. Therefore, even though it is God who sanctifies us, he gets all the glory, all the credit, we as Christians are to work and to work hard. We are to cultivate growth through the spiritual disciplines, through the common means of grace. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Work hard, Timothy, for godliness. And here's where we see the application. We need to cultivate growth in our lives. The spiritual disciplines, we need to do it through spiritual disciplines and through obedience. To provide the environment for growth to happen. Make scripture reading a priority. Get up early before work, before the kids get up. Read scripture, study scripture, meditate on scripture, listen to scripture, memorize scripture. Husbands, uh, give your wife time to, to study scripture. Watch the kids so she can have some alone time. Pray. Pray in the morning when you wake up. Pray in the evening just before bed and, and pray every moment in between <laughs> without ceasing. Evangelize. And don't do it passively. Don't wait for the right opportunity. Open your mouth and share the gospel. Look for opportunities. In fact, plan opportunities. Plan times where you're intentionally evangelizing. Be faithful. Be faithful to observe the ordinances. If you're not baptized this morning and you're a believer, get baptized. Be obedient. Make it a priority. Participate in the Lord's Supper together as a, a church. Take it in a worthy manner. Take it with reverence and then celebrate with joy, remembering that Christ is the one that paid for our sins. Worship with singing, worship with giving, worship with serving. These are ways we cultivate growth in our heart. Make church a priority, the bride of Christ, the local body. Be committed, be involved, be a member. And not a member like a Costco membership, a, a member like biblical membership, like an arm that, that if you weren't here, it would hurt. Make fellowship a priority. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider, let us think, let us, let us figure out. Consider means to work at it, to think about, to figure out a way. Let us let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Do you do that? Do you think about how you can help out a brother or sister to love better or to work harder? 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I mean, if you're one of those that watch the news and gets worried and thinks like, man, Jesus is coming soon, then make church a priority. (laughs) Because the day is coming near. Be at church. Sing together. Fellowship together. Hear God's word read and preached and proclaimed. But also, find a small group. A smaller group of people that know you and get involved in a growth group a smaller group who who knows you who can challenge you who who if you weren't there a couple days would call you up and say where are you that will encourage you that will keep you accountable love that group serve that group practice all the one another's we see in scripture with that group and, and make it a priority I mean, if you have to pay for babysitting, pay for babysitting and get into a small group. Listen, obey God's command, repent from sins, trust in God's grace. These are the ways we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, just like a farmer who prepares the field for growth, we need to prepare the fields of our hearts. God to grow, grow our sanctification, grow our Christ-likeness. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it is God who works in us. God, I pray that we hold perfect balance that we see in these two verses, Lord, that we are called to work, we are called to work hard, we are called to train ourselves for godliness, yet at the same time we know it's you that works in us and we can rest because of that. It's by your grace and power, Lord, that we work. And I know that work and rest seem like two opposite things, but these two verses are telling us that we do those two things at the exact same moment. We work hard resting in your grace. Now, how those two things go together, I don't know, Lord, but I know there is no conflict. There is harmony in them. So I pray for our church. I pray for Country Oaks, Lord, that that we would be known as a church, Lord, that pursues holiness. That we train ourselves for godliness. Yet we are so gracious that we know it's all by your grace, Lord, that we are justified, that we were declared righteous. It's all by your grace, Lord, that we slowly grow in our righteousness. And it's going to be all by your grace that one day we will be glorified and righteous. That you get all the glory, you get all the credit. And I pray that we understand these things and, and through that we work hard, Lord. That you would give us the desires to work hard, Lord. And that we would glorify you in any growth that we see. In your son's name we pray. Amen.